Well, it's the first Sunday since the presidential election, the general election of 2020. But here's the thing. It isn't Sunday. Uh, it's Tuesday. As I stand here uh, recording this video, it is 10.50 on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. So we're still several hours away uh, from the polls closing here in Maine. So here's what's happening this morning. A couple weeks ago, the Holy Spirit just kind of impressed on me that I should press pause on the Rethink Church series and address the moment we're in. And I've been especially bothered and burdened by the intense emotion surrounding this election. And I've been concerned about the fallout after Election Day, regardless of the results. So I felt like I should speak to that, but I wanted to do it in such a way that uh, no one could misinterpret my intention or think somehow my own uh, personal political views were influencing what I had to say on the other side of the election. So rather than wait and speak live on Sunday after the election, <coughs> and we're getting really close to bringing live teaching back to Sunday mornings here, I decided to come in and record this early on election day uh, so when no one knows any results and speak to the moment in a way that addresses our response regardless of the results. So that's what I'm going to try to do today. And I'm calling this the elephant slash donkey in the room. Here's something you need to know. We aren't a very big church at Faith Community Fellowship, but we have the entire political spectrum in our church. And I love that. Uh, if you think the person sitting next to you thinks exactly like you do about politics and culture and what's best for our country, you might need to just take a step back on that. If you think the person sitting near you voted like you did this week, because after all, no Christian could possibly vote for, yeah. Uh, listen, if you're looking for a church where everyone is the same, where everybody sees the world in the same way, where everybody lands in the same place where it come, when it comes to political leanings, uh, you're in the wrong church. Because, <laughs> by the way, that's not our mission. I mean, not even a little bit. It's not our mission to get people into lockstep on one particular political view or another. That's not our mission. It's not our agenda. It's not the reason we're here. And I'll tell you personally, I never really, I never want to be a part of a church where everybody agrees on everything politically. I mean, there are theological ideas that we don't even agree on, and we've said that's okay. We believe there are theological ideas that are open-handed, and that's okay. So here's the thing. I believe that it's in our differences that we have an opportunity to model for our friends and family and community what it looks like to disagree about some things like politics and continue to disagree without trying to persuade one another, without thinking that the other is less than because they don't think like I do. And it's in that that we have this opportunity to model uh, what it is to have unity around the things that matter for eternity. And since we have the entire political spectrum right here at Faith Community, we also have a wide range of emotions about this election. So I want to just talk about a couple of things, well, four things, this morning. I want to talk about fear, <coughs> excuse me, fear, anger, unity, and hope. Fear, anger, unity, and hope. So let's see where this takes us. First of all, I want to make sure uh, not to tell anyone how to feel, all right? That, that it's wrong to feel this way or that way, or here's how you should feel. That's, not, that's just not helpful, right? So you can feel what you feel, 
And I hope you'll listen all the way through because it might be tempting to get stuck on something in these next few minutes or to let your mind wander or to put some kind of spin on what you think I'm saying or maybe even try to read into something that I'm saying that I'm not saying at all. So I hope you can acknowledge that this is a difficult subject to address, but we're not going to shy away from it. We're going to approach it in a way that is helpful and respectful and hopefully encouraging and ultimately bringing us back to Jesus. So let's talk about fear. For the last 10 months, we've been inundated with fear-based messages. I mean, it comes at us from every angle. I play this game with cable news, and I admit these results aren't scientific, but it just seems that when I turn on CNN and their focus is on anger, if I just switch over to Fox News, they're working the fear angle. And when Fox News is emphasizing fear, if I just switch over to CNN, they've got some people on there who are just angry. It seems, it seems like it's a concerted effort, like it's, just, it's coordinated, like it's just one or the other all the time. Anger and fear, fear and anger. And listen, both sides use both tactics quite effectively. So let's start by talking about fear. If your response to the results of the election, or I don't even know where we're going to be on Sunday, so let's say the potential results of the election. If your initial response is fear, I get that. I know it's a real thing. But when it gets right down to it, I wonder what do we fear exactly? In the United States of America, what exactly do we fear? And I think when I got thinking about it, I think the answer is the same for all of us. I think the thing we fear is loss. We fear loss. We fear something is going to be taken away. I mean, if you voted for President Trump, you might have been afraid that a Biden administration would take away fill in the blank. And if you voted for Vice President Biden, you were afraid that President Trump, got a, if he got another term, you would lose fill in the blank. <laughs> when you boil it down on a micro level, we fear loss. We fear the loss of control, the loss of opportunity, the loss of a future for our children and our grandchildren. We fear the loss of our cultural distinctives. We fear loss of freedom, loss of progress, loss of certain rights. And ultimately, we fear the unknown. And how is it that in the the same election, so many people, so many Christians are fearful of losing certain freedoms or certain rights? I mean, think about this. How did a nation that's as free as America get to a place where every people group feels like they're a victim, a victim to the point where we vote in blocks depending on what rights we think we're going to be forced to give up if the other side wins. So let's be honest, okay? Because the left thinks they're victims and the right thinks they're victims, and socialists think they're victims, and Christian right think they're victims, and women think they're victims, and white men think they're victims, and blacks, and Hispanics, and homosexuals, and NASCAR fans, and the 1%, and the 99%. Everyone thinks they're a victim. So how is it that we all think we're being victimized, and I'm using the word we, to the point that we vote according to who we think will protect our freedoms and address our priorities best. So what's going on with that? Here's the thing. Whether we're getting our information from cable news or the networks or social media or the internet or our circle of friends and family, listen, the coronavirus isn't the only thing that's contagious. This panic and fear is super contagious. So the question I've been asking is, where did these symptoms come from? Because when I feel it inside, let's be honest, where do these symptoms come from? 
where they come from is the fact that as things change, as things transpire, as unknowns happen, because there is an unknown element to this, right? What happens is you feel a loss of control. And that lack of control thing can spiral on you. And there's this thing about humans that typically when we're losing control, there's only one way that we respond when we lose control. We start to do what it takes to get it back. And that's normal. So you're trying to get control of the unknown because you don't know what the future is going to bring. Uh, you don't know what's coming next. You, you want to get control back. You want to be prepared for the future because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And when you don't know what's going to happen in the future, you lose hope. And there's this thing about hope. You and I need hope. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And I think the people who write political ads for TV and social media and radio and even for print they specialize in fear. There's no doubt about it, right? They have figured out how to tap in some of our, to some of our most primal fears. And here's the thing about fear. It doesn't have to be based in reality for it to affect us in a very real way, right? But I'm finding that on the other side of fear, <coughs> when, we, when we let it run unchecked, it often brings us to this really unhealthy place. So we think the Natural response to fear is to retreat and recoil and hide, and there's something to that. But there's another outcome that is probably unexpected, and, but I certainly can see how we get there. Sometimes uh, our fear actually drives us to anger. We're angry at everything and everyone that is threatening, threatening the things that we hold dear, threatening a way of life, uh, threatening, uh, let's just be honest, the things that we think we're entitled to. I mean, we don't use the word entitled, we use the word rights because some men wrote it in a document. But when the fear of the unknown and the fear of losing control is left unchecked, it easily leads to anger. So let's talk about anger. It seems like nearly everyone I talk to these days expresses frustration and anxiety and disquiet and despair, and anger, especially anger. People are angry. They're angry about the lockdowns. They're, you know, religious people are angry about church closures, because come on, what about religious liberties? Some are angry about Black Lives Matter and protests and toppled monuments, and how come, you know, they can gather in large groups, but the church can't. And, and what are they trying to accomplish by, you know, erasing and rewriting our history? Still others are angry about conservative politics and the evangelical right because they just vote in a block regardless of who the candidate is, regardless of what the issues are. And everybody is angry at the mainstream media, which most people seem to consider hopelessly biased. Most sociologists agree that our country is increasingly polarized, all right? And the intensity of that division has taken on a whole new life in the last few years, especially in the last few months. We, we, we know it's true because, I mean, we know it's true that people on the right are angry, right? I mean, have you watched Fox News lately? The volume level is louder than it's ever been. People talking over each other. Viewers talking over the TV. And CNN, I mean, the people on that side, don't even get me started. The volume level is higher than it's ever been. People talking over each other. Viewers talking over the TV. See what I just did there? Same observations about two very different cable news networks, and I know, this is, I know this to be true because I make it a point to experience both on a regular basis. And I'm pretty sure that there's a cause and effect component here, but I haven't figured out if the media is driving our angst or if we consume it because it's a reflection of our frustration and anger. I'll have to ask the guys at Freakonomics to get into that for me, but I know this. There's a lot of tension. 
There's a lot of acrimony right now. The coronavirus has made us more anxious, which has no doubt shortened the distance from frustration to anger, you know, about everything. Because I don't know, it's just an observation. I don't know if anybody else has even thought about this or if anybody's talking about this anywhere, but the coronavirus and the response to the coronavirus, I'm going out on a limb here, just a thought, maybe nothing to it, but it seems, it just seems to me like it's kind of political. And don't laugh too loud because I'm, I'm talking about both sides. I'm talking about the people who still want to shake my hand and whisper in my face. And I'm like, back off, please. And people who haven't left their basement since March. Like, you really should come out for some air. Whether you think the church has done the loving thing by not meeting together, you know, and some churches are continuing to do the loving thing by, you know, really by not meeting together. Or whether you think because we've stopped meeting together for a few uh, you know, weeks and then we, we adjusted the way we're doing things and it's, it's not the same as it used to be and so we got to sign up for church now that somehow we've sworn allegiance to the communists among us. I mean, it doesn't matter where you look or what your thoughts are. The response to this tends to take on a political edge. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if you had told me at the beginning of this year that the most talked about political, cultural, moral, and ethical topic would be whether or not to wear a face mask, Right? Add to all that racial discord and racial injustice and civil unrest and peaceful protests that in some cases have been overtaken by violence, then the death of an iconic loved slash despised Supreme Court justice, and then there's, there's one more thing, um, the election. <laughs> this is what's impressive to me. It's one thing when the overarching theme of every political radio uh, and TV ad is anger and fear. It's really impressive when that comes through in their print ads too, in their print materials. Do you get any political ads in your mail this season? Uh, like in the last couple of months, any days where you had a piece or two of political uh, propaganda? Because uh, if you're like me, I'm sure you found that really helpful in making your decision. <laughs> but did you, is it just me or did you pick up on a tone in all of these ads? And you know the one that repeats itself every four years? This is the most important election of our lifetime. And if you vote for him or if you vote for her, if they win, if they get back in office, here's all this terrible stuff that's going to happen. And it reads like an apocalyptic novel. The rhetoric is so extreme to the point that debate in the political arena, what should just be give and take, has turned into life and death struggle against evil, like it's a struggle between light and darkness. And listen, when we've consumed enough of that, and some people get a steady diet of it, like every day, every evening, for like hours a day. When that's what we're taking in, eventually it finds its way into our thinking, into our worldview, into our views of church and what we think the church should be about. And eventually, you're not only fearful of what the other side might do, you're angry that they might do it, and you're angry that people would vote for them, and you're angry that someone you know, someone you work with, someone you go to church with, someone you're related to, would vote for them. And it's found a place of such high priority in your mind and in the volume of content that you consume every day that you're actually quite angry about it. Here's the thing. About half the people in our state, half the people in our community, some people in our church are angry today. They're angry about the results or the pending results of this election. And if you're vocal enough about your political leanings, like even going so far as to tell people which way you voted, people might be angry at you. 
we've landed in a place where we lean heavy into an us versus them mentality. We've done it in the church in America for generations now. When the church decided years ago to take a detour and go off mission and give itself to a religious culture war, becoming, nor, becoming known more for what it was against than who it was for. And when we take a position of us versus them, we elevate us and we diminish them. And oftentimes to the extent that we actually dehumanize those who disagree with us. And whatever feeds our success is good and right. And whatever feeds their defeat is good and right. And we begin to see people who simply see the world differently than we do as the enemy. And our anger feeds that, and it in turn feeds our anger. It's a fear, anger. Let's turn the corner. We've been talking about a couple negative responses to the world around us. Let's shift gears here and talk about a better response. Let's talk about what Jesus has called us to do. Let's talk about unity. Regardless of the results of this presidential election, about half the country is going to be happy, about half will be unhappy. And in this cultural moment, regardless of the results, a half of the country will continue to look at the other half of the country and see not a fellow citizen with a different opinion, not a decent person with an opposing viewpoint. Now, we've come to a place where the person who disagrees with us about political and social ideals isn't just someone who holds an opposing view. We've allowed ourselves to see them as enemies. But listen, regardless of whether your candidate won or lost, the guy on the other side is not our enemy. The neighbor who supported the other guy isn't your enemy. The person sitting with you in church this morning, the person on stage under a spotlight this morning, the person serving your kids or your grandkids and FCF kids this morning who supported the other guy, they're not your enemies. I love this verse, Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is a song of ascents. We, we talked about this a few months ago when we introduced the song Highlands. That a song of ascents is a song that was sung as the Jewish people were making their way to worship together in Jerusalem. They were songs that they would sing in their family groups as they're traveling to Jerusalem. So they would worship in their smaller family units as they made their way to worship together with their community, with hundreds, maybe even thousands of other people. So knowing this gives this verse a, a different meaning for me, a more meaning. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. The Hebrew word for unity simply means togetherness. Now, I'm not uh, much of a musician. I've been singing in worship teams for nearly 30 years. I hack away at the guitar. I took seven years of piano when I was a preteen and high schooler, so I got, I got some instruction in music theory. Sang in choirs in school and college and church. Sometimes I sang baritone. Sometimes I sang tenor. I even sang bass a time or two. But I'm not a harmony singer. My ear just doesn't hear the part. So the only way I could learn these parts was to listen to the cassettes that the choir directors would give us with the harmony line just pounded out on the piano and drilling it into my head, and eventually it would come out of my mouth. Here's the thing about this verse, about all the psalms. We forget this sometimes, but they were songs. They were meant to be sung. And think about this. In our worship team, Garth and I always sing the lead line, the melody line, because Neither of us has an ear for the harmony line. Every once in a while, just because of the way the schedule works and people's availability, sometimes our entire singing team is made up of people, maybe four or five of us, all singing the same part. And that's all right. I mean, as long as we're singing on pitch, it's okay. But it's not that interesting to listen to. 
because it's really not the way music works when it's at its best. So this is the thing I love about being uh, part of a band for all these years, because right now we have seven musicians in our, well, six musicians and a drummer. Um, sorry, Punky, that's a little band humor. What do you call a guy who hangs out with musicians? A drummer. So, sorry, I digress. We have seven musicians in our band, and uh, we have our electric guitars and acoustic guitars and keyboard. Listen, they don't all play the same thing. They aren't all playing the same notes all the time. And sometimes we intentionally play in unison. We intentionally sing in unison. But the thing that makes unity and collaboration in music interesting and pleasant and engaging is when we're playing different parts in conjunction with one another, playing harmony to create something beautiful. With that in mind, look at this verse again. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. These words are meant to be sung in harmony, different instruments, different voices, singing one song. I think what our country needs right now is harmony. In John 17, Jesus prays and he prays for us. And when Jesus stops to pray for us, do you know what he prays for? He doesn't pray for safety. He doesn't pray for job security. He doesn't pray for financial success. He doesn't pray for our religious liberties that they would be protected. He doesn't pray for any of the things that we tend to pray for. When Jesus stops to pray for us, he looks into the future and he knows that in the church and in the life of his kingdom, there'll be all kinds of things, all kinds of opinions, all kinds of causes, all kinds of disagreements and arguments, all kinds of expectations and even judgment, and that any of those things could bring division. And so he prays for us, and this is what he prays for, John 17, verse 1. It says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Jump all the way down to verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning I'm not just praying for these guys and these women who have been following me for the last three years or so. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That includes us. So here's his prayer request. That all of them may be one. And I think this is amazing. I, I pray that somehow... As different as they are, as many opinions as they have, as many distractions as the world throws at them, as many hang-ups and different ideas they may have, that somehow they would be one. This was Jesus' prayer request for us, which tells me it's mission critical, that although it seems impossible, it's absolutely imperative, that this was not an add-on. It wasn't a wouldn't-it-be-nice-if kind of idea. This is inseparable from the mission that Jesus has called us to, which means that in our pursuit of his calling on us as a church and as individuals to make disciples, to love people into a growing relationship with Jesus, that we have to be intentional about ensuring and guarding and protecting unity in the church, unity among churches, unity in our relationships, in our homes, unity in our friendships, unity. This is what Jesus prayed for. And the reason he prayed for it is because it doesn't come naturally, it doesn't come easily, and you don't just stumble upon it. Oh, and Jesus isn't done. Verse 21. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you've sent me. Listen, he prayed for oneness, for unity among us, not for us, but because of what he wanted to do through us. And listen, there can be a lack of unity in a local church, 
and the church can survive and continue to tread water for a long time doing the things that they think are important, but missing the thing that Jesus has called us to. Because without unity, without oneness in the church, the will of God cannot be accomplished. Jesus says, I want them to be one so that the world may believe. So that people outside the church, the people who aren't yet in relationship with me, who are still living apart from their Heavenly Father, so that they will see unity in spite of differences. That they'll see unity among churches despite you know, distinctives between churches. That they'll see unity in our relationships and interactions with one another. That they'll come to the conclusion that this thing that we talk about actually makes a practical difference. It adds value. It is life-giving. And ultimately, that it would be so attractive, like a light on a candlestick or a city on a hill, that they would come to believe. This is mission critical. A church that unites around the mission and call of Jesus to love God and love one another. The church that knows oneness, even though we disagree, is unusual. And it's going to get people's attention and it's going to point people to the way of Jesus. We can't sacrifice our unity for anything. Just a few minutes before Jesus prayed this prayer, he had said this to his disciples. He'd said, I'm giving you a new command. This is in John 15. He says, love each other. And they're thinking, well, this isn't new. You've, told, you've been saying this for a while. But he raises the bar. Love each other as I have loved you. This is how the world will know that you are my disciples. And here's something I don't say very often. Ready? This unity thing. This is God's will for your life. This is God's will for you. This is God's will for you in your marriage it's God's will for you in your family, for you, in your workplace, for you in all of your relationships. This is God's will for us as a church, both within our church and in relationship to other churches. This is God's will for us because this is what Jesus prayed for us. It's a fear, anger, unity. Let's talk about hope. <clears throat> Here's the thing. Your candidate won or lost on, based on how American citizens voted on Tuesday. It's as simple as that. And please don't tell me, well, this must have been God's will. He puts the leaders in place that he wants. We get the leaders we deserve. Everything happens for a reason. Just, I, I can't, it just, it, it, just doesn't work. it just doesn't work that way. So you're either celebrating and hopeful, or you're disappointed, maybe even fearful, depending on where you land politically and how you view the world. But listen, the kingdom of God will win or lose based on our choices, based on our behavior, based on the way that we do relationships, based on the way that we love one another, the way that we love people like us, and the way that we love people who are nothing like us. And the kingdom of God wins or loses based on the strength of our unity around the truth of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection, the mission of the church to love people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And if you're concerned about the future of our nation, and you think the results of this election have set us on the wrong course. Remember, I'm recording this on Tuesday morning before the polls have closed, before a lot of you have even had a chance to vote. But if you think the results of this election have set us on a wrong course, can I just remind you, it was Christianity. It was this upside down, inside out, these values of the kingdom of God. Those things we talked about and studied from the Sermon on the Mount a few months ago. It's those kingdom values that shaped a lot of Western culture. It wasn't American politics, it wasn't government, it wasn't Republicans or Democrats or the Federalists or the Democrat Republicans, that was actually a thing, or the Libertarians, it was Christians. It was followers of Jesus, it was the church, it was the teachings of Jesus, along with some ideas from the Torah that laid the groundwork for our modern sense of justice and fairness and dignity. 
And we haven't always gotten it right. I mean, our great national shame of slavery is evidence of sometimes we get it terribly, terribly wrong. But our hope, listen, our hope is not in a president or a presidential candidate. Our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is not in the Constitution of the United States or even the Bill of Rights. Our hope is not in a flag. Our hope is not in military might. Our hope is not in a system of government. Our hope is not in any of these things because all of these things are temporary. Every dictator dies. Every president is term limited out. Every political party eventually goes the way of every other political party before it. They're temporary. So why in the world, listen, why in the world would we as citizens of the kingdom of God, why in the world would we allow ourselves to be divided over something that is temporary? I'm talking about the United States of America, temporary. There will be a day when there is no more USA. I'm talking about our form of government, temporary. There'll be a day when there is no more seat of government in Washington, D.C. I'm talking about politicians and elected government officials, temporary. I'm talking about political parties, temporary. Read the history of our American political parties. Political parties are short-lived. Uh, even presidential administrations, temporary. Uh, at best, you know, eight years. I have t-shirts older than that. So like all these things that we put so much energy and in, in, in emotional energy into and take so much hope and find so much hope in, they're temporary. Why do we allow ourselves, followers of, a, of an eternal king, citizens of an eternal kingdom, why do we allow ourselves to be divided by temporary political systems and temporary political leaders and temporary political platforms? Why do we allow ourselves to pledge our allegiance to lesser kings and lesser kingdoms? And why, why do we allow ourselves to be divided by fear? All these things go away. But the kingdom of God goes on. Hebrews 12 says the kingdom of God is an unshakable kingdom. What we're called to do, listen, what we're called to do is not dependent on who gets elected. The person in the White House, whoever it is, that person is not going to save. No politician is going to save us. Only Jesus saves us. Jesus is our Savior, no one else. Our allegiance should be to Jesus and no one and nothing else. We all tend to fall back on things that we think we can control, that, we, that contributes to our sense of hope, you know. But I want to ask you a question. Is the only hope you have the hope that you've built yourself? Is the only hope you have the hope that you're building yourself? I think an experience like we're all in right now, you know, with a, with a presidential election during a pandemic, it's a unique time. And I think it's forcing us to ask questions about our hope, about what our hope is in. Like, what are we trusting in? One thing I think we've learned about ourselves over the last few months is that some of the things that we tend to hope in can disappear like that. So what happens when we lose control? When we lose control, we hold tightest to the source of our hope. When we lose control, we hold tightest to the source of our hope. So right now, what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? Do you find yourself more hopeful since Election Day? Or are you less hopeful since Election Day? And why is that? Is your hope somehow tied to this thing that is quite temporary? Maybe you aren't feeling so hopeful this week. Maybe you're more hopeful than you were last week. Can we just recalibrate and get honest and make sure that our hope isn't connected in any way to the person in the White House? It isn't connected to a political party. It isn't even connected, listen, to a political ideal. All these things are important. They all have their place. 
But none of that is where our hope is found. Here's the thing, follower of Jesus. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to bring, that God loves us even in our sin. God loves us. He gave his son to provide a way to be restored into relationship with our heavenly father. That's the good news. And along with that, Jesus brought a whole new way of being human, a whole new ethic of loving one another as he loved us. Our hope is in Jesus alone. So right now, I want to ask you a question. As a church, what do we do with our hope? What do we do with it? Like, what do we do with our hope? Because we don't want our hope to just end with us. Like, how do we share it with others? Because we know hope is more powerful than fear. Listen, let's use our best creativity to share our hope with the people in our lives. Like this week, let's do that. And I know it's hard right now. Because for some people, the only, only interaction you're getting with some people is on social media or by text or in your email or maybe by phone. And I'm not suggesting you go all, you know, like K-Love all the time on your Facebook feed. That's not always helpful. I guess all I'm saying is, in whatever way we can, choose to be for people. At a time when it feels to most people like everything is against them. All this stuff beyond their control seems to be working against them. Let's share this contagious hope. Let's be people of hope and people of peace. Because no matter what happens, our hope is alive. Let's not simply then hold on to it. Let's give it away to the people around us. Maybe it's a word of encouragement. Maybe it's some positivity. Maybe it's helping somebody who's elderly, who's been living with a real sense of disconnectedness these last few months. Maybe it's someone at work who just needs you to be for them, to pray for them. There's a massive opportunity for us to show hope in the face of fear. So let's spread hope. Now, just before I pray, let me give you a little instruction. After I pray, we're going to play some music, and we're going to put a few questions or statements on the screen, and we're going to take a few minutes for personal reflection. So after I pray, stay right where you are and let's all engage with this. Let's take a few minutes to let the Holy Spirit speak and let's be open to what he has to show us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our nation. Thank you that we have an opportunity that many in the world uh, just simply will never have an opportunity to do. We have an opportunity to choose our leaders. I pray that you would help us be good stewards of this awesome responsibility that we've been given as citizens to influence the direction of our nation. Father, I pray for our next president. In this moment right now, I don't know who that is. doesn't matter whether we voted for that person or for the other person. Today, we come together to pray for our next president. We pray that our next president would wake up every morning aware of the awesome responsibility he's been entrusted with, that he would be reminded of every day that you are the most high God. May decisions that he makes reflect values that you would cheer on, reflect values that you have you know, made it, left as an example for us, and may you be glorified. I pray that as citizens of this country and as followers of Jesus, that we leave our fears in your hand, that we leave our anger at the foot of the cross, that we come together in unity around the values of your kingdom, that we would find our hope in you alone, that as a result of our unity and our hope, that many around us would take note, they would come to know you as we know you, that they would experience peace and the hope that only you can give. We pray all this. In Jesus' name.
Amen.